Every writer knows that the best conversations about writing don't happen in classrooms, symposia, or any fancy artisanal setting. They usually happen at the bar after deadline's done. That's the vibe we're going for here. This is The Other 51, conversations with writers of all genres about writing. I'm Brian Moritz. Today's one of my favorite episodes I broadcasted in 2017, my interview with author Seth Godin. Seth Godin, welcome to The Other 51. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute pleasure. It's great to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> um, before we get to Hamilton talk, and we have a lot to talk about with Hamilton, I did want to say this is not host blowing smoke up, guest spot or anything like that. You, I've been an admirer and a fan of your work for a very, very, very long time. Um, and I, there's one piece, something you wrote, one piece of advice that I always kind of come back to, and it's probably one you, you don't get back at you a lot. It was in a list you wrote on your blog, and it was the walking your dog is almost a better use of your time than anything else you could be doing. Wow. How long ago did I write that? It, it, it's been a few years, and I, it just always stuck with me because I have two dogs, and it always stuck with me is when things are stressed, when things aren't going well with work or with writing or with some grading project or something, you know, just going going for a walk with the dogs tends to always help, so... Yeah, and it was a blog post about placebos and rice cookers and magnetic key hiders. But <laughs> right there in the middle of it, a little bit of insight about walking your dog. Yep. Um, so we, um, so you, this is the room where it happens today. And you mentioned just before we hit record that you have seen Hamilton twice. Now I think I've only, my wife has seen it more than twice. But I'm thinking maybe I only saw it once, but I've heard about it so many times. I feel like I've seen it <laughs> twice. Right. Now, someone who hasn't, hasn't seen it, and I asked this of, the, of somebody else who's been on the podcast who did see it, um, I didn't miss anything, right? Total waste of money, nothing no, no, nothing to see here, right? Well, I think it depends on uh, what your priorities are and how you engage with art. Uh, there's, there's not a lot to commend the Broadway show in terms of being an efficient way to deliver anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. And um, so... If you accept the boundaries of the Broadway show, the cramped theater, the difficult work rules, the uh, conventions, then this is the most exceptional Broadway show since West Side Story in 1959. If, on the other hand, you want to look at it uh, in a slightly less visceral way, I would think that the combination of the book and the soundtrack could get you pretty far. Well, my wife is a theater girl. My daughter, our daughter, is already a theater girl. So we're fully on the on the first end of that. Then and you gotta um, go. <laughs> we are. We are trying. To, we've been trying to make a way for this to happen for for a long time. Um. So as someone who you know has seen the show, but also kind of um very famously embraces disruption and embraces new ways of thinking and looking at it. Kind of from that perspective, what's what impresses you the most about Hamilton as a show? Okay, well, I guess I must begin with its creation myth, which is a true myth, that one human being, without every possible advantage, a few advantages, but without all of them, writes and creates and uh, scores a musical that breaks so many rules at the same time it embraces the other rules that it's the equivalent of Bowling 300. It's something that a lot of people could have done, but 
Lin-Manuel brought with it such heart and such unique experience and such passion that he was able to make something happen. And for me, someone who celebrates the individual's contribution, that feels more um, important than seeing a $200 million movie that was made by a thousand anonymous people. Because mm -hmm. it shows that a human being, a single human being still can change the game. And, and and I love how so much of the 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 story around the show and and the and the backstory and the creation story celebrates how hard it was for him writing the show. Like he's given interviews where it took him a year to write the first song and a year or two to write my shot. And this was not, you know, the kind of so what the, what the Sylvester Stallone myth of Rocky uh, sitting down and Rocky, writing Rocky in a weekend. Like this, this, this like this this took work to put together. In fact. Work is almost always the answer. There's the number of people who have talent is very small. That I would agree that you need talent to dunk a basketball, something that you were born with. But for the rest of us, the rest of the time, we were born naked and alone, and we figured out how to bring work to the fore. Work aided by culture, by lucky breaks, by health, but still work. And that's good news for anybody who doesn't think they have a lot of talent because it means that work is available to you. And so seeing it in the theater, I mean, going in and knowing all the you know adjacent hype and all the kind of buildup around it, when you're actually in that room and, and seeing it, it, seeing it, uh, the performance uh, in, in person, I mean, what's that? I mean, you've been to shows. What's that experience like? Is it different than other shows that you've been to on that visceral level? And why, do you think? One of the magic things about books is all books sort of look the same on the outside, and all books cost about the same amount. Mm -hmm. So a book is pretty much going to be a pleasant surprise when it's great. There's not a lot of hype that precedes the arrival of a book. Uh, Broadway by definition, is exclusive, it's difficult, it's inefficient, it's elitist. So just walking into the theater brings with it this expectation because, after all, you're spending a lot of time and money to get something in a really awkward way. That means that I don't worry at all about the fact that Hamilton's overhyped because all Broadway shows are hyped. And the thing is, when you see Hamilton with all that expectation becomes a powerful placebo and sure. you you come to expect more of it and fortunately for the cast they deliver on that do you have a favorite song in the show uh you know it plays an enormous amount in the background of my life so i think i probably know the whole thing by heart by now and uh i am not a fan of storytelling ballads i am more an upbeat sort of get that music to resonate with me thing. Okay. So when uh, when he's rapping as uh, Jefferson uh, or Lafayette, mm -hmm. that 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 I love that moment in the play. And it's such a, a like a, a, this burst of like 
energetic fun in the middle of the show and a very serious part of the show. It's in the middle of, you know, uh, leading up to the Battle of Yorktown and things have been going bad. And it's just this kind of huge burst of energy in it. I love that. My wife and I do a very bad uh, car- carpool karaoke version of that song, too. Um, I also I'm, I'm, I've become a big fan as I've listened to it over the past year of, the, of George Washington songs. And uh, History Has Its Eyes on You, the very short one in Act One, for some reason, lyrically, really has been resonating with me lately. So I know it's your podcast, but I'm not prepared to talk more detailed about Hamilton, and I'm not sure that's what was on our agenda. But if you want to keep talking about Hamilton, that's okay with me. No, no, that's about it. Okay. uh, No, and I I don't want to stretch too much because I know we want to talk a lot about writing and about and about your career writing. Um, and we can kind of segue back to your blog, um, which I'm a subscriber to. And, and it's one of actually ends up being one of the first things I read every morning, just because I get it about uh, usually about six o'clock in the morning. So when I'm drinking the coffee in the morning and and I'm kind of catching up on what's happened, the the blog is there. And I, I I really, one of the things I enjoy about it is I kind of, it's kind of like, uh, Steve Stephen Pressfield, and he writes in one of his books about meeting about how he'd love to have a shaman, a daily shaman that he'd have breakfast with, and whatever the shaman told him to do that day, he would do. So in a lot of ways, you're kind of like my daily shaman, and kind of thinking about and getting ready for the day, and thinking about how to approach my work and all. Um, so how do you? I mean, just a, a little bit about the the how your blog came about and why your blog, and and why you blog every day. So kind of the background of what's your blog like how do you see your blog well those are three different questions so let me mm-hmm. try uh i would write my blog even if no one wrote it okay. read it i would write it even if no one read it because the act of committing to once a day sharing something that i'm proud enough to put my name on is incredibly powerful i think everyone should make that commitment even if no one reads their blog it clarifies the thinking it helps you take responsibility uh, it feels generous. So um, that's why I will continue to do it for as long as I can. I also view it as a pretty big responsibility. I have about a million readers. Um, you know, that's more people than watch more, many TV shows. Uh, and I don't want to waste the trust that I've earned. I don't want to waste the opportunity I have to help people see things a little differently. In terms of how it came about, I think... I started doing it 25 years ago in 1992 before there was a World Wide Web. It started as an email newsletter. It didn't go out every day. Uh, It went out when I had something to announce or say. And then over time, those announcements turned into pointers to things that were interesting that I'd seen. And over time, that turned into the blog. Um, But I've been doing the daily blog on this platform for well over 10 years, more than 7,000 posts, and I have no plans on stopping anytime soon. So do you write these posts every day, like the day be- the day of or the day before? Or are they collected, or how's that? what's that magic like? Yeah, it doesn't matter. And it's okay. Not, it's not magic, but it doesn't matter. People should just write. Okay. Um, and what is that? I mean, you, you talk about that act of that, how it's powerful to have that act of committing to writing every day. Why... I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit. Why is what's so powerful about that act? You know, it's interesting. If you talk to someone who didn't eat lunch today or yesterday, they'll go on and on about how busy they were. They couldn't even eat lunch. 
And for the next four hours, they'll be thinking about the fact that they missed lunch. Well, we know from a physiological point of view that you can quite happily miss lunch without starving to death. Lunch is a habit. And as a result of having this habit our whole lives, we tend to eat lunch. Well, what would happen if you had a habit of finding an insight or a habit of sharing some wisdom or a habit of being generous? It would get to be like lunch. That's the goal. And so you, um, and, and one thing I, I, I know I've listened to enough of your talks and read enough of your stuff to know, um, we talk about writing on this podcast, but you talk a lot about shipping. And so the, like the difference, not just writing every day, but publishing every day. And is that an important distinction, do you think? A huge, huge distinction. So the Nike thing is largely misunderstood. Just do it doesn't mean what the hell, do it anyway. Just do it actually means merely do it. Okay. Do it with focus. Do it because you can. Merely do it. And this act of shipping says if you commit to putting your writing in the world, you are closer to being a professional. If you are writing in your notebook, what you're doing is fooling yourself. You're hiding and you're daydreaming about how wonderful your writing is because no one else is seeing it and no one else is criticizing it. Even if not a lot of people read your blog, even if almost all the time no one reads your blog, your psyche, your resistance feels like they might. And that act of saying, here, I made this, will change your posture. Uh, you mentioned the resistance, and I knew we were gonna we were gonna get to that. And I was rereading uh, some of the Stephen Pressfield books that I have. I have three of them, I think, in my library. The, Great. The um, uh, and um, and such a powerful voice in, in in I'll put the no- links to the to the books in show notes for this episode because they're so powerful. And, and anybody who does anything kind of creative in, in their lives uh, would do well to, to to read it. And he talks a lot about the resistance, and you mentioned that. So. For anybody who may be not be familiar with this concept, what is the resistance? Well, full credit to Steve. I mention him every time I talk about it. He calls it resistance. I call it the resistance because it rolls off the tongue better. Okay. It is an artifact of your amygdala, your lizard brain, the voice in the back of your head that wants to hide. That the wild animal in us, and we all have one, it's about the size of two almonds, uh, is in charge of revenge and anger and safety. And it is the voice in your head that doesn't raise your hand at the end of a lecture when someone says any questions. It's the voice that gets you to change your outfit three times before you go on a date. It's the voice that tricks you into thinking you have writer's block. The resistance gets stronger the closer you get to making a difference. It gets stronger the closer you get to being noticed. And it is wily and powerful and subtle, and it affects everything we do every day. And my argument, which is a little different than Steve's, is you can't make it go away. The fear never goes away, but you can learn to dance with it. You can look forward to that feeling and turn that feeling into fuel because it's evidence that you're on the right track. So, so you, still, do you, you still deal with this, right? Every day. So, so I'm wondering that, like, you, you know, to use, to use it as fuel and dance with it. So... You know, as you like stare at the blank page or figure out like, okay, that's a cliche. We shouldn't use that. But whatever you're trying to do when you feel the feel resistance, first of all, let's 
back up a little bit. So when you feel resistance, you personally are like people that you talk to and, and talk to you about it. What does that feel like? What is like, how do you know you're up again? You're dealing with the resistance. It's tempting to talk about, as you pointed out, the cliched dramatic moments, staring at a blank page. I'm not so worried about that kind. Uh, that's so unsubtle. It's really unlikely to trick us. What I'm worried about is, for me, the biggest sign of resistance is I check my email. Okay. Because checking my email feels productive. Checking my email feels generous. I can check my email for an hour, answer the emails of 30 people. They'll all be grateful. I took the time. I feel like I uh, accomplished something, but I've done nothing but hide. And that, in fact, looking at a blank page is probably a much better use of my time because then I'm only a keystroke away from actually doing my work. Okay. When we think about people who say, I can't do that, my boss won't let me, that's the resistance talking. Okay. Because there are people in your organization that did buck the bureaucracy, that did do the right thing, that did stand up and didn't get fired. But it's easier to just say, well, it's against our policy, I can't help you. That's the resistance talking. The resistance is what enables every bureaucracy to exist. The resistance is what keeps people from voting in elections because they don't want to be responsible. Uh, so that's where we need to look at for it in the corners. And so when you start kind of recognizing that or feeling that in yourself, and you can give tips for what you do or kind of just general advice, however you see fit to answer it. But I'm wondering like, like, like okay, now, because it seems like, the facile answer would be to, you know, merely do it, to sit down and, and start typing. Is it that easy? Oh, it's not easy at all, but it's sort of okay. simple. Okay. The, the, the most important thing is to not seek reassurance. Okay. Reassurance is futile. And the reason reassurance is futile is there are people around you who will reassure you because they like you. But they will never be able to give you enough reassurance because you need an infinite amount of reassurance. That the closer you get to the important work, the more reassurance you need. And it's not available. So we begin by agreeing with ourselves not to whine and not to seek external reassurance. And then the second thing we do is we announce to ourselves that we've chosen to be a professional. That's important because plumbers don't get plumber's block. <laughs> There's nothing, writer's block is a made-up illness. It doesn't exist. It was invented in 1930. You can look it up. Okay. Uh, actually, it was invented, it was in the media, it started showing up in books in 1930. It was invented by Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley's husband, the, guy, the woman who invented Frankenstein. Uh, he was a hack poet who had one good poem in his whole life. But he, he wrote an essay basically inventing writer's block and saying, if you're blocked, it's because the muse isn't showing up. You can't handle it. You should go do something else for a living. And that caught on because the resistance loved that idea. Mm -hmm. It's all made up. There is no such thing. We've, we are manifesting a certain kind of fear because we live in a culture where writing is an easy way to get in trouble. It's an easy way to get rejected. It's an easy way to fail. And so we concoct this whole idea that I'm not in the mood, I'm not in the, it's not the right emotional moment, and we find something else to do with our time. Well, the thing we have to do is train the resistance to learn 
that the more it complains, the more we're going to write. And once the <laughs> resistance figures that out, it doesn't complain quite as much. That's actually, uh, I've been thinking about uh, about this in my own blog and my own writing and how, like, I think for, for myself, not to turn this into a mini therapy session, but for myself, it almost feels like the resistance is, well, I want this to be really good and meaningful, right? It has of that, course. like, putting that weight on it that I don't want to just, you know, publish something on my blog every day just to have something on there. I want it to be big and meaningful and important. Yep. Perfection, and, perfectionism is is the best friend of the resistance. Yes. And, and uh, trying to kind of overcome that. And, you know, you know, it, it's again, quoting Pressfield, you know, you, you, you do the work. That's the point. Like you're you're you, you, you get to do the work and, and not not entitled to anything else from so let, that. Let, so let's talk a couple things about this perfectionism. Okay. Number one, uh, I don't know if you're a jazz fan, but yes. I hope we can agree that Kind of Blue one of the most important jazz albums of all time. No question. It took four days to record, maybe three. And there are missed notes. So the question is, would it have been a better album if Miles had taken three months? Probably not, no. Definitely not. <laughs> There's no doubt. You know, if you make pacemakers, please be perfect. <laughs> but if you make the work that we make, perfect isn't the goal. Perfect mm -hmm. isn't the point. It, as, long, as soon as you say that out loud, it's obvious that every classic book could have been a little better. Every one of them could have mm -hmm. been edited just a little more. But that wouldn't have made them better. It would have just made them late. So okay. the second half of this, what I say to people who tell me they have this block is... You tell me you don't have enough good ideas. You tell me your writing isn't good enough. Show me your bad ideas. Show me your bad writing. If you commit to a lot of bad writing, sooner or later some good stuff's going to slip through. You won't be able to stop it. <laughs> if you commit to regularly and persistently writing down and creating ideas, the worst ones you can think of, sooner or later some good ones are going to slip through. I rarely run into people who say, I have a lot of writing. How do I make it better? What they say to me is, I don't have any writing. I have a block. And mm -hmm. they, want, they want reassurance. And I don't give them reassurance. I say, just make more bad writing. It's a great lesson. It's a great lesson for me to hear, a great lesson for my students that I, that I tell them to, to, you know, to kind of, I, I, I teach a lot of journalism courses. And so often I will tell, you know, students get caught up with, you know, the start of a story and how they're going to start it. And they kind of get that block. They kind of get frozen on it. And I always tell them, just start writing, you know, start writing in the middle of it, start writing in the, you know, wherever. And just, you know, the, the more you make, the more you can go back and edit and make it better. But you got to at least start somewhere. And the act of writing will, it, it kind of gets it go. It kind of gets you gets that river flowing almost, and kind of gets something out, and which is the goal. Exactly. So most of your students are terrible writers, uh, and the fact is that some of them have had their appendix out. When they got their appendix out, they didn't have it removed by a doctor who was removing her first appendix. Right. It was a doctor who was on her thousandth operation. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. The goal is to have your appendix removed by someone who's done it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to a mediocre writer 
is that the only way you're going to stop being a mediocre writer is to write more. So don't worry about handing me a good essay. Just hand me an essay and do it fast and then do it mm -hmm. again. Why are, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in this topic because one of the classes I teach is media economics. And as we're recording this, we're in the middle of talking about the current states of print industries and we're getting into the, the publishing industry and the book industry. Why are books, actual physical books, such an important part of kind of your work and your, uh, your career? Well, I'm so glad you're teaching that course. I hope you'll have them read the posts I wrote on the Domino Project about this. I will. Um, it's a long, complicated story, so let me try to do small versions. It took 500 years to create and polish this form of media. It is the most long-lasting, most efficient, most easily shared in its entirety medium we've ever had, and it's going away. But right now, for most people over 20 years old, it has a Proustian impact on us. Holding a book reminds us of other times we've held a book. It reminds us of Dr. Seuss, or it reminds us of learning a new idea, or it reminds us of uh, the moment we had some sort of insight. To be able to capture all of that mimetic value for something that you can print for $2 is magical. And so for me, who made a living chopping down trees and making books for 25 years, all of that is present. I'm well aware that most people on earth don't want that anymore. And I'm sad that it's fading, but that doesn't mean I don't love it. And what I find interesting when we talk about books in my classes and te teaching 18 to 21 year olds is that for all their digital, uh, like everything they do digitally, most of them still prefer uh, traditional books, hard copy, paper, paper books and, or, or printed books to e-readers or reading it on their on their devices and i find that really interesting and oddly reassuring you know that um yeah and, and, and it's not really reassuring okay here's, why here's not? the problem the problem is the kindle stopped being developed five years ago and the kindle <clears throat> is a is a sin against literature it should be so much better so much more powerful social uh smart engaging it's none of those things what it did was take the book and make it into a pale imitation of the book right and as a result it makes other things like email and chat more attractive compared to a digital book so when someone's forced to read they'd rather read a book than a kindle book because at least it has some value but in the long run what we're going to see among your students is few of them are going to grow up to be the kind of people who read a book a week. Mm. Um, and talking about education, one of the things that I, I've, I heard, I've heard in your talks that I love is the idea of we should be getting students to solve interesting problems and solve interesting problems in interesting ways. And I, that's something I think about all the time, both in my own classes and with my daughter who's in first grade and kind of helping her um, – you know, start to engage the world and learn things. So when you say solving interesting problems in interesting ways, what are you, what, what are some examples of that? What do you, why is that, why is that what we should be teaching? Well, I don't even care if they solve them in interesting ways. Okay. I just want them to solve interesting problems. They're, okay. Here's what school is. School was built by people in power who ran factories to train kids to be compliant cogs in an industrial system, to sit still 
for 8 to 12 hours a day and do what they're told. That's what it's for. It's its stated function. And we needed it for a long time. The thing is that the United States is never going to be the country with the cheapest, most compliant workers. We can't win that race. But we have a shot at being a place filled with inquisitive, uh, interesting people who are eager to lead and to solve problems. That's not going to be replaced by computers anytime soon. It's not something that's easy to outsource. So we have all these kids, your daughter's age, and we, instead of teaching them to look for interesting problems and then figure out how to solve them, we say, stop thinking and start memorizing. And there's no reason for that because anything worth memorizing is worth looking up. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is one by one over a 12-year period of time, dumbing down every kid we can get our hands on instead of asking the critical question, which is, what is school for? And that question, if enough parents asked it, would lead to a revolution. So for you, what's school for? to teach kids to solve interesting problems and to lead. Okay. And if you as a parent think it's for something else, speak up. But right now, what it's for is train compliant cogs for the industrial system. Yeah, I see that. It drives me, it, it does drive me crazy with a lot of my students in college who are used to that system and, you know, get an assignment in a writing class or a journalism class and not all, not all of them, but often enough, it will be. Uh, they will ask for a lot of guidance, and they will ask for a lot of structure to it. And I, you know, I have become very comfortable in giving them very limited assignments and saying, fi basically, figure it out. And because right. to and, me, and you know what the worst thing they say is by far, is will this be on the test? Right. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that because it says. I have no interest in actually learning anything. I have no interest in finding an interesting problem. I have no interest in leading. I merely want to get through this at the lowest possible cost. Will this be on the test? And so I refuse to engage with that question <laughs> because it's buying into a shortcut that makes life easy for teachers but robs our students. What's the best thing you've read lately? Oh, I don't know. I read a lot, and okay. it, you know, if you ask me what's the best time travel science fiction story, I would say Replay. If okay. you ask me what's the best book on uh, how we engage in the workplace when we don't know what to do, I'd say it's Keith Johnstone's book Impro. If you were going to ask me uh, what's the most important book about the gift economy, I'd say uh, The Gift. Uh, it, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. You, you, how much, how much do you read in a day? That's pretty much what I do when I'm not making videos and stuff. Um, you know, people send me a lot of books. Most of them are terrible, and I keep looking for books that I missed because when I discovered the War of Art, it was seven years after it came out, and I was like, "Why wasn't I informed? Why didn't <laughs> anyone tell me about this?" I hope that there are more books out there like that. Uh, well, the best thing I've read re recently, uh, it, it's actually, uh, we're recording this on March 23rd, and it was over the weekend, uh, Jimmy Breslin, the famous columnist yeah, from New York, the, uh, passed away, and I reread the column, the Gravedigger column, the column he wrote af uh, on the, the man who dug JFK's grave, 
after the after he was assassinated. And I just love that uh, that was given shown to me at a very young age in my journalism career by a mentor of mine, and it really it completely kind of changed my game of how I look at writing. And I just love the backstory of it, which is probably apocryphal in a way, but Breslin goes down to uh, to Washington to cover the 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 funeral and it's the big state funeral with all the important people and everyone's writing the important stories with the big people. And he turns to a, our Buckwald and goes, you know what? I'm going to write a column about the guy who dug his grave. And he went and found him and he wrote it. And it's the, the lasting piece that a lot of us remember from or a lot of people remember from that time. It kind of is held up as one of the best newspaper columns ever written. Wow. I didn't know it. I'm going to read it now. Excellent. Well, Seth, thank you Clifton again. Clifton so... Pollard yes. is his name. Yes, exactly. and he he made $3.01 an hour, and he had bacon and eggs for breakfast that morning. There you go. The, the details just uh, that uh, in, in the writing just incre- are incredibly sticky to me from that. So. Right. So, um, Seth, if people want to re- get your daily uh, blog, how can they find it? Type Seth into Google, and there you go. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. A pleasure. Go make a ruckus, Brian. As always, thanks for listening to The Other 51. You can find show notes for this episode and all our episodes at sportsmediaguide.com on The Other 51 tab. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. I can highly recommend Overcast for this. Our theme music is by Ellie Moritz. 